0: Amen. My name is Stephen, uh, campus intern here, Blue Ridge Church of Christ. And this is it, guys. The end of Matthew. We've been doing this for years, and it's finally come to this moment right here. Uh, Go ahead and preemptively turn your Bibles over to Matthew 28. All right. Literally, there's nowhere else to go. There's only like five sentences left in Matthew and we've literally been, we've been going through Matthew as a church for almost, you know, for like two or three years now, uh, which gives you a sense of how long the, the ministry of Jesus actually was, because it was about the same amount of time. So we've almost been doing this in like a, uh, like, you know, how, you know the, the show 24, how every episode was filmed in like, you know, real time. It was an hour of real time into an hour of show. That's almost what we've done here. Uh, it's like every week is like actually corresponded with a week in the life of Jesus. Uh, But this is it. This is the end. This is the culmination of everything that's happened here. And we've looked back, you know, we've seen Jesus, we've seen him from birth, we've seen him preach the word, we've seen him uh, die and now resurrect. And we approach this moment here at the end of Matthew, and actually things aren't quite as stable in this narrative as I think we would have hoped. And we approach this moment at the end of Matthew of Jesus's time on earth and actually the mission is in a very precarious position. In a very delicate moment here. And Jesus he's gone and he's you know died resurrected come back. And this is going to be the first time that he's approached the disciples in a really intimate way. You know, in a way that he's actually going to again start to teach them, again start to commend them. And this is a, a very precarious moment because the last solid interaction that Jesus has had With his disciples has been a moment that ended in abandonment a moment that ended in death a moment that ended in denial And before this moment, you know, we've seen the disciples and they've all abandoned jesus in the garden You know, he taught them he gave them his last words there before he died and they all left him as soon as the going got tough They just abandoned jesus and peter denied jesus three times in the garden and John was the only one who was there at Jesus' death. And that was the last solid interaction that they had with Jesus. And, you know, we know from kind of John and Luke more so that, that Jesus has appeared to them a few times, but he hasn't really, you know, done very much. He's kind of been in and out randomly. You know, he's kind of given them little bits and pieces of, of himself. You know, taught, you know it, it, engaged with them in, in, in random moments. And right here he's actually going to approach them. You know, at this moment, we know from John, uh, John 21, that at this moment with the resurrection, with appearing to them, what have the disciples done? They've gone back to their old way of life. And in John 21, the disciples have gone back, not fishing for men, but fishing for fish. And they've taken this grand, you know, purpose that Jesus has given them when he said in Mark 1, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. They've abandoned that. They've gone back to their old identities, to their old way of life and not only have they abandoned jesus physically they've abandoned abandoned his message they've abandoned his purpose and they've gone back on what jesus has laid out for them and in john 21 you know all those ideals all the promises you know these were the men who were supposed to change the world and they went back to their old lives back to fishing for fish and this is a sober moment, and I think for, for us we can look at a decision like that, and especially in light of everything that was happening, in light of the resurrection, in light of the empty tomb, you know, they, they had gone, they had seen the empty tomb. The women had gone, you know, seen the tomb, seen Jesus. Jesus had approached them in various ways. And have, he had even appeared to them and talked to them. And you know, they had they had felt Jesus, you know, they, they had they had seen his physicality, put his hand in their side, their fingers in in the holes in his hands. You know, but what happens they go back to their old way of life? And I think when we look at that kind of decision, we think, like, oh, man, like, how silly is that? Like, that's kind of dumb. You know, this is, like, supposed to be a moment of triumph. And our hope would be that in a moment like this, the disciples would be like, let's go. You know, Jesus is back. The mission is started. We're going to go. But they've gone back to their nets. They've gone back to fishing for fish. And in this moment where we would hope that there would be high hopes, let's see what happens in Matthew 28, verse 16. Verse 16, it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And we look at this moment and we can kind of get confused. It's like, how in the world... When you're approached by Jesus in this very physical way, how do you doubt him? When you've seen him die, you've seen him been resurrected. How do you doubt in a moment like that? And, you know, for us, I think, you know, in today's day and age, doubt can a lot of times be like, I don't even know if, like, Jesus existed. I don't know. That wasn't really the case for them. It's hard to doubt, you know, someone that you can, like, you know, touch and talk to and have a meal with. It's hard to doubt their existence. That's not really what they're talking about here. When Matthew talks about the disciples doubting, he's talking about a doubt in his lordship. In Jesus' status as Savior, in Jesus' status as the Messiah and Lord of their lives. Amen. And we can look at a moment like that in three words. That is that is a very simple statement, but some doubt it. But that's powerful right there. Yeah. Especially in a moment like this. And we can go, are you crazy? He's right there, he's resurrected. He died, he's come back from the dead. How can you not believe that this is the Son of God? Someone that can, you know, by their own power, be raised to the, you know, from the dead. And we can think, clearly he's Messiah. Clearly he's Lord. And we can even be envious that they've had this moment of such physical interaction with Jesus. You know, we think, if I had that, surely I would believe. Surely I would be filled with faith in a moment like that. But some doubted. And I think in a moment like this, we can underestimate how hard of a moment this actually is for the disciples. We can underestimate how human of a moment this is for the disciples. But honestly, I think that the disciples responded just like we would in adversity. And I think how we do in moments of adversity. And I think it's important to see that because the disciples were humans. And I think, you know, we can put them on a pedestal, but... This moment right here is how we are. But that being said, you know we're going to look at the example that they set after this moment and then be able to engage with this in a human way as well and say, okay, if this is how I respond in moments like these, I can respond and rise to a challenge that Jesus gave me, just like the disciples did. No, I think that the disciples had put so much hope in Jesus and they were finally vulnerable enough to be in a place where they said, hey, this is the Messiah. And I think we, we underestimate a moment like that, where Peter says, hey, you are the Christ. And that would have been a moment of intense vulnerability to put your hope in something that impossible. To put our faith in something that impossible. Like your heart would have just been bared right out there, fresh for the breaking and they put so much hope in Jesus and when they had finally put all their hope in Jesus what happened the man that they had all this hope for was killed he was arrested and killed by the very power that they thought he was going to overthrow and their entire world this entire conception and this this whole this whole narrative they had put their faith in came crashing down around them and their hearts broke and I think that kind of faith just opens the door wide for faithlessness. Yeah. And this happens to us all the time, I think. Anytime we go on a limb, it's vulnerable. Anytime we go on a limb in our faith, that's a moment of intense vulnerability. Yeah. When we go out and we're like, okay, I'm going to evangelize you know, with 100 people this week or 1,000 people this week. And we go out and we do it, and maybe no one wants to study the Bible. Or we invest in someone, we build uh, faith in them, you know, we're, we're showing them the scriptures, we think, man, this person's going to make it, and we pray for them, we fast with them, we fight with them, but they fall away, Well, they end up stopping studying the Bible. We're praying for an opportunity, you know, a job, a relationship, what have you, uh, an A in a class, and we're praying, and we're fasting, and we're, we're putting our faith in this, you know, in this moment in God's providence, but it doesn't come through right then and there. And we lose faith. And when we're painfully disappointed, I think it's so easy to lose faith, even in the face of clear scripture and truth. You know, when the promise is that there is a harvest that is plentiful, but the workers are few. When the promise is that God's will is going to be done above our own. You know, when there is a promise that there are people who are going to make it and will stay faithful, that there is a fourth type of soil that produces a fruit. We lose faith in that, in the face of disappointment, even when the truth is so clear in front of us. And I think in a moment like this, the disciples were, were faithless and they doubted because they didn't want their hearts broken again. And they didn't believe in themselves and they didn't want to be vulnerable again because of the intense pain that they had. And so Jesus comes to this moment and he looks at these men. And what are they? These are men that are full of fear and full of doubt. Men who have abandoned Jesus. Men who don't even know if they believe in Jesus, don't even know if they believe in themselves. That's the 11 men that Jesus is looking at. These are the 11 men that are supposed to carry on the mission after he leaves. And what does Jesus do in this moment? Matthew 28, verse 18 Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What does Jesus do at this moment when the mission stands on a knife's edge? When the people who are supposed to carry out the mission are doubtful? Jesus empowers them. And he looks at what we would see as such a a, a delicate and even hopeless situation. You know, a moment where the disciples are wavering, a moment when I think in our discipling of others, we kind of pull back and we go into crisis management mode and we say, hey, like, you need to figure this out and then you'll be able to do this. What does Jesus do? He gives them a charge. And what does Jesus do? He looks upon men without faith for him and themselves and he has faith for them. And he trusts them even when they don't trust themselves, and he loves them enough to give them a charge, even when all they've demonstrated is faithlessness and betrayal. And he loves them enough to give them a chance. And I think this moment is perfectly encapsulated in uh, how how Jesus interacts with John, go or, or with Peter. Sorry, go ahead and turn over to John twenty one. I think it's so important because Peter went from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. And he went from promising Jesus. The night before he was arrested, Peter said, I will die at your side. Like, there's nothing that can happen that will separate me from you. And that very night, he abandoned Jesus. And that very night, he... uh, He denied Jesus and his association with him to a servant girl. He denied a man that he claimed was the Messiah as soon as things got tough. And I think for Peter, he would have seen so clearly the inadequacy of his faith. He would have seen so clearly his failure. And honestly, if I was Peter, I'd be so full of self-doubt in a moment like that. Because if I had been so confident in my commitment to Christ, and then as soon as things got tough, I just ran away, I wouldn't trust myself anymore. I'd be like, man, like, my, my emotional judgment doesn't, doesn't, isn't valid anymore. It doesn't really count in a moment like this. And this is the first intimate interaction that Jesus has with Peter since that moment, you know, when he looked him in the eye and saw him deny him three times. And what does Jesus do in a moment like that? John 21, verse 15. It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. And so what does Jesus do? Because in this moment, there's nothing that Peter could say which could justify himself. There's nothing that Peter could say which would get Jesus to trust him. Because what Peter has said has proved to be false. And so Jesus approaches him, and he decides to trust Peter anyway. And he has confidence in Peter, even though he really shouldn't. And when, in a moment when, us, when we would kind of turn our backs on Peter, Jesus approaches him and loves him still and forgives him, and reassures him three times. He asks Peter if he really loves him three times, reflecting his denial of him. And three times Peter comes and says, yes, Lord, you know. And what does Jesus do? He gives him a charge. He says, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. And then he gives them one final command, follow me. Now, echoing those first words that he gave to Peter when he called him out of the boat, he says, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. As if even though all this stuff had gone down, even though Peter had abandoned him, denied him, The command was still the same. The charge was still the same. The love was still the same. You know, with even mistakes that high and costly, Jesus saw past them to what Peter could be. And so after this moment, what happens to the disciples? What happens to these men who were so full of doubt and so full of self-doubt and even doubt in Jesus? What happens to them after this moment? Go ahead and turn over to Acts 2. Literally should just be a page over. And so the disciples go, Jesus ascends, he's given them this charge, the Spirit comes, in Acts 2, verse 14, they go at Pentecost, and there are Jews from all around the world there, and the same people who had called for Jesus' death and crucified him days before are in Jerusalem still. In verse 14, then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And Peter preaches the word and go down to verse 36. Preaches it boldly. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And Peter gets up in front of the same crowd from which he fled, the same people that killed Jesus for this message a message that Peter abandoned and ran away from in the face of death and gets up and preaches boldly. And preaches in the face of death. The message that they killed Jesus for. And a man before, who before cowered in feel, fear before a little servant girl, at the mere suggestion of association with Jesus, he gets up and preaches boldly. And that's honestly what all the disciples do in Acts. And that's what they continue to do. They rise to that challenge, that charge that Jesus gave them. And they embrace that calling that Jesus gave them to grow and sustain the church in all the known world. And they become so bold and courageous in that, that all of them except John die for that message. And they tried to kill John, but somehow failed, like, you know, put him in boiling oil and stuff, and somehow he came alive. Crazy stuff. But each of these men went and before had run away from that message but then died for it. And so what's the, the question is, what changed? What's the difference between those men then and after? And I think the answer is the disciples finally understood and saw grace. Before that moment, they doubted and they did not understand it. But afterwards, they were finally ruled by this concept in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, that Christ love compelled them and they had received the holy spirit you know in second timothy one they had received uh one verse seven you know the spirit of power and of boldness but they understood grace because grace was transformative and we see that when we look at peter you know the night before jesus you know was arrested and in that moment and then afterwards that grace was transformative and it completely changed these men. And when Jesus gave them this great commission, these were the men he knew they could be. These Acts 2 men. And that's what he died for, to give them a chance to come back from that. And they finally saw grace clearly, and they saw the depth of their sin. I think they were confronted with their sin in a way that was like very, very physical, very powerful, where they saw their abandonment of Jesus. They saw that their sin put Jesus on the cross in a very physical way. And then they saw the level of Jesus' love and how he died for them and invested in them despite all that he had done, all that they had done. And then they saw that not only did Jesus come back and associate with them and forgive them, but loved them enough to then give them a charge. And loved them enough not just to forgive them and just like, you know, let them keep screwing up and say, hey, you can rise above this through my power. You can rise above what you were. To something greater this charge is now yours my mission is now your mission and it's the same for us because like the disciples without christ we're just dead in our sins and without christ we are just enemies of god who have just abandoned the messiah but jesus loves us enough to see how deep and disgusting our sin is and still die for us to still wipe our sins away and to give us a mission and a purpose and I think for some of us, you know this this mission is the culmination of grace. This mission is like is such a high expression of that grace that we're given something to fight for, and we're given the mission of Jesus when He's not here to do it himself. But I think for some of us, and I, I know for me at certain times, this mission can seem more like an obligation, more like a burden. You know we see this. As an obligation rather than a gift and an opportunity. And if we do this, we're never going to live up to that ultimate purpose. We're never going to live lives like the disciples in Acts. But do we see it clearly as a gift? You know, I think this, this mission is so important. The culmination of this grace, we have to understand what it means. We have to understand what it entails. Go ahead and turn back to Matthew 28. We have to understand what this mission entails. I think for, for a lot of us, this, this passage is very familiar. I mean, kind of hear the words and not really the meaning, you know, for all that it is. So let's try to look at this really just bare bones, just with fresh eyes. Verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And Jesus here gives us three commands you know, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything I have commanded. And the question has to be asked, are we doing this? And I think we do a good job of doing this sometimes. And I know for myself, I can do a good job of doing this sometimes. I think for a lot of us, and you know, this is always the struggle. I think for a lot of us, you know, we try to pull this calling back as far as we can. And we try to say, okay, where can I find the line where I say, I've still fulfilled this. What is the bare minimum that I can do to get by, to say, yes, Matthew 28, that's something that I live out. Here's why. And we say, we try to find that minimum. And personally, I've definitely been there. And it's it's a constant struggle not to be there. Not to be like, okay, where's the minimum? What can I do just to stave off my guilt? And honestly, that kind of mindset misses grace. And it misses what Jesus has done. It misses the fact that this is the culmination of grace. That this is the culmination of all of that. I think for me, it's so easy not to see my sin for what it is. Not to see, you know, my cowardice when I don't open my mouth as like the abandonment and killing of Jesus. Not to see my faithlessness when I don't have vision for people, when I don't have vision for the lost, or the people I'm studying the Bible with, or the people that I'm investing in, as the abandonment of Jesus. It's so easy to see, not see my selfishness, You know, when I don't consider the needs of others uh, or anything else, like, you know, impurity or greed or evil thoughts, it's so easy for me not to see those things as abandoning Jesus, as killing Jesus. And it's easy to see why. It's because that's a painful thing to realize. And for me, I struggled so long uh, and still struggle with uh, kind of emotionally engaging with things. And for me, it's so easy to just kind of, like, detach from things emotionally and kind of disinvest when it gets hard. Uh, which is the reason I hate horror movies, uh, <laughs> because, like, I, I either, like, am in it, and I hate the emotion of being afraid, or I'm just, like, I'm just going to emotionally disengage with this, and then it's just boring. Uh, <laughs> and I'm just, like, this is just dumb. Like, this monster doesn't make any sense. Anyway, that's, that's just my nature. It's hard for me to engage with things emotionally, and I can very, when things get hard emotionally, I can very easily turn that off. But if we don't engage with that pain, if we don't engage with that emotionally, we're never going to get grace. And if we don't see, like the the disciples had to see this. They were confronted with this because Jesus literally came to them and this was a man they had abandoned and they had to deal with that. They had to deal with his death because they saw it. We have to choose to do that. We have to choose to open our hearts to that kind of pain. We have to confront Jesus in that way because if we don't, this charge means nothing for us. This charge is an obligation. Without that, his forgiveness and this charge will mean nothing. You know, But if we see grace properly, this charge ceases to be a list of just three rules that we try to avoid or cower from in fear. And it becomes a gift. It becomes a higher calling because we have a God that loves us enough to employ, empower, and trust us with his own mission. With his own work. And when we get this on straight, we'll look a lot more like the disciples in Acts 2 and beyond. And I think, for one, you know, we're going to be more eager to run away from our sin when we see it as that abandonment. But we're also going to run towards righteousness. We're going to run towards this calling. I think evangelism will be our way of life. You know, conversion is going to be our purpose. And we're going to be reaching out to everything that, like, breathes and, like, moves or even, like, looks like a human being, like, remotely. Because we're like, oh my goodness, like this gift is amazing. This, I'm doing the work of God, you can too. Yeah. We have a God that loves us enough to give us his work here on earth and work through us with his power. And the question is, is this what your life looks like? Are you trying to pull back that line or are you pushing it forward? And if not, why is that? I think for a lot of us, and in the times when it's not for me, it's because we don't understand this grace and we don't understand this calling as a gift. Right. I think something unique about this church uh, is that we harp on this a lot, this idea of evangelism. And I think rightly so, because that is so important to Christ's message. Uh, read the Bible with fresh eyes and you'll see that like, making disciples is something that is a primal calling for a disciple of Christ. Anyone that follows. And I think something that kind of, that might get forgotten in in a message like this is the third part of this message where he says, teach them to obey everything I have commanded. And I think when we look at Matthew 28, we see like, yes, like go out and evangelize the world. And yes, like we need to do that. But I think we can see it as two out of the three things. Go and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Son, of the Father, of the Holy Spirit. And then kind of a third like backseat thing, teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And in the book, The Lion Never Sleeps, uh, the writer Mike Tolliver kind of deals with this and talks about just the immensity of that word everything. And I think we do a good job, again, of teaching people some things. You know, and we have these six Bible studies that we kind of teach everybody. But there's no way that in six hours of talking to somebody, you can have teach them everything that's in this book. Like, it's like 1,019 pages, all right, you don't just get through that. and say You can't even read that thing in six hours, much less explain it. But we forget that. And this is the key to the mission. It has to go both ways. We need to have this in entirety because if we're just baptizing people and then we don't continue that process, people are going to struggle. They are going to fall away. And we need both to build the kingdom of God and then sustain it. And the question is, is that a priority for you? And I think when we hear that question, the temptation is to be, hmm, like, have I taught somebody everything? But that's actually the wrong question to ask yourself first. The first question you need to ask is, are you being taught everything? And then I think the temptation there is to think, like, well, no, like, my disciple is not teaching me everything. No, no, are you going out and trying to learn everything for yourself? Are you going after training? Are you going after knowing this book in entirety? Are you going after knowing the words of Jesus for yourself? There are plenty of resources out there. Are you showing up to LTP that we have Sunday mornings before church once a month? Are you going after learning everything? Are you asking input? Are you asking deep questions to your discipler, to the people around you? Are you going online, looking things up, watching the Bible Project, trying to understand this for what it is? And then, when that's our pursuit, then are you going and trying to pass that on to everybody else? Are you trying to pass on everything that you know in ever-increasing amount to everyone around us? Because that's the key to sustaining the kingdom of God. And if we pull back on that part of the promise, we're just going to be focused on survival and not on thriving. We're just reading our Bibles just just to get by. Just to be like, okay, this is what I need right now. I know where I'm going. Let me just read what I've always been reading instead of pushing the envelope getting more and more and more of the mystery the unknowable mysteries of Christ. Is that our heart? Because teaching can't just stop with the Bible studies, you know, how deep are you diving into your Bible? How deep are you diving into the word? You know because this process can't end with conversion. There's no way there's no way that a baby Christian knows everything. You know, and that, that part of uh, conversion, Mike Tollifer br- brings this up in his book. It's really short. You guys should read it. The Lion Never Sleeps. He's like, conversion is a glamorous process. But when we stop investing in people after that, it's just pride. Because we're just, you know, focused on this, this, uh, this attractive, you know, conversion, you know, at the front where we see p- someone being brought from life to death and we can count it off as like a conversion. I was a part of that. I was in a baptism. But do we invest people in, the, in people in the same way after their disciples? Do we invest in, the same, in people the same way when they've been disciples for years? Trying to get growth. Trying to push forward. And church, imagine if this was our focus collectively. You know, imagine if we went after this with energy and tenacity and with boldness. The way that the disciples did in Acts 2. And instead of holding back and pulling the line as far back in these things as possible to the point where we're kind of stretching the definition And trying to like stretch our actions over this immense calling to say, hey, I've filled it. We'll push forward with a full and real understanding and focus on grace. And you know what would happen? The kingdom would advance. And it would move forward. And this movement would be unstoppable. And not only would we be making disciples, we would make disciples with their eyes fixed on Jesus. With a desire to be taught everything. Everything because that's our own heart. And we would make disciples that made more disciples with this heart. This is the chain, this is the plan for a growing and sustainable kingdom of God. This is Jesus' mission to us. This is his purpose given to us. We're going to be making disciples that aren't focused on survival because they're focused on Jesus and they're focused on moving forward and pressing the envelope and saying, how much more can I do to fulfill this? Because this calling is, is god's love and this is the plan that god's giving us and so church let's rise to that challenge because we've been loved enough to be redeemed for that purpose and here's the thing if not us then who and that's something that gets tossed around a lot but honestly we need to engage with that truth because if not the disciples then this doesn't happen jesus passed on this calling to his followers and if we don't act nothing happens and not that like we're supposed to do this by ourselves but like the power of god moves through us and you know we're not adequate to this task but we have the holy spirit that moves through us but we have a god that's loved us and trusted us enough to give us his work and jesus has confidence in us that through the spirit the word and the encouragement of those around us we can see we can succeed in this and be bold enough, and be as bold as those 11 men who met jesus in matthew 28 But church, we need to see grace properly, and when we do, the world will change, and the kingdom of God will move forward. And so as we go on to communion here, let's focus on that grace. Now, this charge is God's grace to us, that he's not only forgiven us, but given us a mission as well, and that's what Christ died for, to give us his calling. Amen, church. Let's bow our heads and pray for communion. Uh, dear God, thank you so much uh, just for this great day, God, just for this calling here, Lord. I just thank you so much uh, just for Jesus' death, God, Jesus' love uh, to forgive us, God, and then trust us with a mission, Lord, to, to forgive us and then have confidence in us, Lord. I pray that we can uh, engage with our sin, God, see it and see the depths to which we have fallen, but God, the heights to which you call us, Lord. And I thank you so much just for everything you've given us, and uh, Jesus, my pray, amen.